Thank you, thank you. Well, I am so excited today to have the opportunity to reflect on the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. It is one of my favorite stories and is one that resonates very deeply within my heart. And while this might be one of Jesus' most famous parables, it's frequently been distilled down to simply a call to help others. And it is definitely not that simple. In Jesus' time, this was a scandalous story with a shocking twist, like many of his stories. We began the scripture with an expert of the law. Some versions of the text are translated to be either a scribe or a lawyer. And what they're referring to is someone who is an expert on the interpretation of Mosaic law. And the expert is challenging Jesus. He's asking him how he can attain eternal life. Some might refer to this as being saved or living after our physical death or possibly creating God's will of heaven on earth. But instead of a straightforward answer, Jesus turns the tables on the expert, like he always does, and asks him what his understanding of the law says on this particular subject. And the expert responds with one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And if you would, please read it with me. You must love the most high God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus responds that the expert is correct in his interpretation of the law, the expert still wants a direct answer to his question. You can imagine this fellow is not too happy with Jesus. He keeps getting more questions in response to his question. So he continues probing Jesus and he asks, and just who is my neighbor? Whenever I read that, I can just hear the attitude in his voice. And just who is my neighbor? <laughs> the expert is trying to justify his own beliefs in an effort to limit exactly who qualifies as his neighbor. He is attempting to limit those whom he is called to love. And so, Jesus begins the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells us of a man traveling alone from Jerusalem to Jericho, from a peaceful city high upon a hill, Jerusalem, to one on the edge of the Dead Sea, Jericho. The road that leads the way between the two cities was well known to be very dangerous. In fact, it was also called the Way of Blood because of the blood that was shed by many of travelers who were assaulted there. It's 20 miles of winding wilderness, and these took advantage of the terrain to victimize others. The lone traveler in our story is attacked by robbers, stripped of his clothing and all of his possessions, brutally beaten, and left half dead. The first to arrive upon the scene is a priest. And listeners to this story 2,000 years ago, and probably now even, would think, help has arrived, the priest is here. The priest was a member of the temple elite and was an expert in the Torah. He was among the most highly respected amongst all of the Jews. Certainly, he would stop to help. But instead, as the story continues, he crosses to the other side to avoid the man. And for listeners of this parable in the time of Jesus, 
it this would have been very shocking, very surprising, very disappointing. Some would say scandalous. The second to pass by is a Levite. And Levites performed religious duties in the temple. They had a social standing that was just below priests, but basically above all the other Jews. So once again, this would have been really shocking that even the Levite now would come upon the scene and would cross to the other side. Both of the first two just completely passed them by, passed that gruesome scene by. They didn't just deny offering aid to the traveler, but they wanted to avoid even seeing the man, seeing if he was alive or dead, getting close to him. And so we're led to wonder, what would have made these two religious and social leaders avoid contact with that traveler? Contemporary scriptural experts have several lines of thought as to why they think that that might have occurred. Some say that the priest and the Levite saw the man and assumed he was dead. Others say that they might have had concerns that if they touched a dead body, they would have been considered uh, ritually unclean and been able to enter the temple for some period of time. But other experts say that the, the laws at the time, the Mosaic laws, would have instructed them that a, a quick burial of an exposed body would have been much more important than any of those things. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. considered why the two men didn't stop to help the traveler during his I've Been to the Mountaintop speech on April 3rd, 1968, the day before he was assassinated. Let's listen to what he has to say about this. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. The times we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious ceremonials was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we begin to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem, down to Jericho rather, to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal root rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. Yeah, that's right, that's right. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles, or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you're about 2,200 feet 
below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody paths. And you know it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, love them there for quick and easy seizure. And though we might not know the true reason why they crossed to the other side, the point is, is that these two individuals were unwilling to take the risk of stopping to help someone else in a dangerous situation. And this definitely would have been shocking and disappointing for folks listening to this parable in the time of Jesus. So it's at this point that the Samaritan comes upon the wounded man. And let's just stop just for a moment to consider the word Samaritan. Because of this famous parable, many folks today have a very different concept of what a Samaritan would be. We think, oh, it's a good person that helps others. But at the time, that was not at all the intention that Jesus had when he told it. Samaritans were strangers, outsiders, enemies, unclean, and didn't practice the proper religious traditions. Does that sound like anybody else we know? So hearing the story at the time, listeners would assume that the Samaritan and the wounded traveler would have had nothing to do with each other. So as we talk about the Samaritan today, try to put yourself 2,000 years ago, hearing this story as it was intended. As you hear the story, instead of the word Samaritan, replace that in your mind with an ethnic, religious, social, or political group, let's say, that you might consider to be a stranger or an enemy or an outsider. Maybe for you, a Samaritan would be someone in the service industry who doesn't speak English or a homeless person, someone you avert your eyes to as you approach them at the intersection or on the street. Maybe it's a day laborer who might be an undocumented immigrant. For me, I imagine a church leader that inflicts spiritual violence on their LGBT congregation. So with that image of who might be a Samaritan if we were to put ourselves in that frame of mind today, here is where the story takes the really surprising twist. It is the Samaritan that stops to assist the traveler. And the Samaritan doesn't just offer aid. He cleans and dresses the wounds. He puts them on a donkey. And can you imagine the conversation all the way to the end? These are two enemies, two strangers, two folks that should hate each other. You can imagine what an enlightening, compassionate conversation they had. Certainly the wounded person that was assaulted would be still stunned from the attack, surprised at the kindness that the Samaritan was showing, maybe even a little bit afraid of the Samaritan. So they would have had some serious conversation on the way to the inn. And once there, the Samaritan doesn't just drop him off. He gives them two silver coins to care for him and then says even that if there's anything else that needs to be repaid, he will do that on the way back. And Jesus concludes this discussion not by answering the religious expert's original question about who he should consider to be a neighbor. Instead, Jesus asks the question, 
which of these three was the neighbor to the traveler who fell in with the robbers? In other, ones, in other words, which one of these acted as a neighbor to a fellow human, one about whom nothing was known other than the fact that they were in need? Jesus interprets the law as issuing the call to be a neighbor to others, all others, rather than specifying which particular people qualify as a neighbor worthy of love. Jesus is suggesting that love, in its very essence, looks for neighbors to receive compassion and care, even when everything else, boundaries, geographic boundaries, racism, transphobia, all other prejudices work against it. And the response by the expert is just as telling. He answered, the one who showed compassion he's not able to even bring himself to say the Samaritan. The Samaritan to him is still this despised enemy, so it's a challenge for him to even say that the Samaritan was the true neighbor. But he does say that compassion was the characteristic of a true neighbor. As followers of Jesus and the gospel, we are not promised an easy road. Instead, we are exposed disciples, traveling this often scary, winding, perilous road that is the human condition. But as Christians, we are called to help all others along the way. This parable does so much more than simply instruct compassion and generosity for travelers. It calls its listeners to embrace opportunities to practice love for others in powerful ways, while also being open to learn from unexpected sources how to do just that. That's one of the hard parts. <laughs> the story not only presents a big challenge, but it also makes an even bigger promise of the gospel and the good news. It is st a story for people on a journey, not just from being born to growing old to dying, but from birth to resurrection, from a limited life to an abundant life. The gospel proclaims how God works in the hearts and the minds and the hands of all those who journey through this dangerous world. Jesus tells us directly that our neighbors are not only the people in our faith community, they are not only the ones that share our political party affiliations. They are not only the ones with the same socioeconomic status or ethnicity as us. They are not simply the ones that share geographic proximity or nationality or language. Jesus challenged the religious expert and challenges us daily to be love in this world, especially to those that we may hate or fear. He's not calling us to come to church on Sunday just to praise and worship God. Church is meant to be a refreshing, renewing, grounding, focusing experience that prepares us for all that we will encounter during the rest of the week. To fully worship and praise God is to live our lives every day in service to others. 
we are called to express God's unconditional, all-encompassing love in the world to all God's people. That is worship. That is praise. Jesus teaches that the practice of neighborly love knows no restrictions, both in terms of who is eligible to receive it as well as who may practice it. In this story, it turns out that the Samaritan knew better than the priest, the Levite, and the religious expert about what it truly means to follow God's law of love. Authentic love does not discriminate, but instead creates relationships, neighbors, because in its very nature, it provides for the needs of others. In this story, we learn about that true love from the actions of one who is regarded as the enemy. To be committed to love our neighbor involves a willingness to see our neighbor as one who is worthy of our compassion and as one who has insights to offer us about righteousness and kindness. This story is about the direction that God desires as we travel through this journey of life. And this is more than a parable about a helpful stranger. It is about the transforming power of God at work in those who travel the dangerous roads in our world, those who help to move us into the eternal, full life here and now. To love God is to love our neighbors. To love our neighbors is to love God. Amen. For gay and for straight, a place at the table, transgender and queer in one single tree, engaging each gift and blessing each covenant. For gay and for straight, a new way to be. And God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy, compassion and peace. Yes, God will delight when we are creators of justice. Justice and joy.